Do you mind uh, flexing your muscles for us, yeah. please? Yeah, shirt, uh, shirt will be off in 10 minutes, probably. Yes, we need the shirt off. It's, yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's coming off. That's the voice of New York wrestling legend Jesse Jansen, and I'm Chris Weidman, and this is Won't Back Down, presented by BioAccelerator. Jesse Jansen was a four-time New York State champion, a six-time county champion, which is literally, all of this is unheard of. Um, he went on to wrestle for Harvard, where he was a three-time college All-American and a national champion, uh, became a successful businessman on Wall Street, and now he is focused on crypto, and uh, he's also dabbled in some movies and, and uh, you know, writing, writing movies, producing movies. Uh, super interesting guy. But the main reason I want to talk to him is that his mindset from such a young age, his mental maturity at such a young age was, is kind of mind-blowing and really uh, different. Um, he sticks out uh, among anybody I really have met. Um, I got kids that are now starting wrestling and getting into sports. And I love to talk to people who were super successful at a young age in sports and, and get their take on, you know, the pressures and if you should push kids, if you should not, uh, and just uh, what his thoughts are on that. Um, all that is going to be coming up in a moment. But before we begin, I want to tell you about Won't Back Down's presenting sponsor, BioAccelerator. BioAccelerator is the world leader in stem cell therapy and regenerative medical research. Through the use of their powerful golden stem cells, they help patients heal from joint and orthopedic injuries, autoimmune disorders, spine and disc damage, and neurological trauma. I was down in Medellin not too long ago, and they they took care of me like gold. I uh, got injected throughout the whole body. I did hyperbaric chambers, massages. Um, it really was a first-class experience, and I'm feeling so much better thanks to BioAccelerator. Uh, I really want to thank them for sponsoring Won't Back Down. And without further ado, here's my conversation with the one and only Jesse Jansen. My leg is actually all right. I'm, yeah. you know, it's had some ups and downs. Right now, I felt like I was 100% on the mend, and everything was working uh, good, and I was heading in the right direction up until like two weeks ago. And I was doing, uh, I was on a medicine ball doing one arm push ups. And I guess it was a lot of weight on my one leg. And the tendon rolled over the plate, is what we think happened. Ooh. And it, like, it was like a subluxing feeling with a sharp pain. And now the tendon is just like, it's not torn or anything like that. We got it checked out, but it's just tender and there's inflammation going on. Oh, but okay. uh, just doing everything I can to work around it and I'll be good to go. Nice. Well, knock on wood, some, knock on something over here. I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, a minor setback for hopefully, you know, healing strong. So exactly. No, I'll be, I'll be good. I'm coming back. I'm going to su su uh, definitely sub sub surprise some people and yeah. uh, on this comeback and uh, I'm excited about it. But yeah. for all the people out there that don't know who Jesse Jansen is, Jesse Jansen, if I had to pick one person from my high school days that I looked up to, that was, you know, inspiration for me. Uh, it was him. He was the first four-time state champion uh, in New York. And that was at a time when there was only one state champion uh, in New York per state. Now there's two state champions uh, per each weight. Um, Six-time county champion, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is unheard of. Like all the things that he, he, he had done at that point, like we've never seen before. I don't know why he even thought he could do it, um, but he just – I think you are still, to this day, the best high school wrestler I've ever seen. 
Uh, well. uh, yeah, you are the man. I remember you had, and then I'm just, I'm just going to keep going on this, <laughs> which I loved you. But um, appreciate that. He, he, you had a haircut where you shaved underneath your hair, right? Like, and it like would flop down a little bit. Oh yeah, the bowl cut. I think. I think it's the yeah. bowl cut back. Uh, in yeah, the day. something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I had to copy that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to make this weird, but yeah, you're the man. Um, and obviously, you went out to Harvard. You've, you know, now you're doing great in business. But uh, I'm super excited to have you on this show. Uh, but let's stick with the wrestling. Uh, to become a four-time state champion, to be winning counties in you know seventh grade, where did you? Since it never even happened before, we had never even had seen that happen. Where did you get that confidence from at such, at such an early age? Um, I don't know if I had the confidence or not. I think it was just you know as you progress. And first of all, thanks for all the nice things. I think you're my only fan out there, so I appreciate that. But no, um, this dude's humble as hell. <laughs> Everyone I, from New York I loves this guy. I wish that, but, um, yeah, so my dad was my coach, which was kind of interesting. And I just watched the movie King Richard, which, uh, you know, much different than the, the Williams. I'm not going to compare myself to them because they were legends, but it was kind of interesting to see the dynamic of a of parent coach and thinking of how my dad navigated that world at such a young age in a sport that's so emotional, so intense. I mean, as a wrestler and a fighter, you get it. It's like, I bet your parents are just, it's just brutal for them to watch you fight or wrestle. It's like mm. this emotional roller coaster. So, and it's intense as a coach because you have to understand your athlete and kind of know what makes them tick. And then you add the parent element. And my dad, like he was just a magician. Like it was always positive reinforcement. He always, he didn't ask me to do something he wouldn't be willing to do. He trained with me a lot. He knew when to back off. I was at tournaments when we would leave. Like I, it was, I had a hundred matches in the off season in high school because we did all these freestyle tournaments and all these things. You could wrestle cadet and juniors. And my dad, I remember at one tournament, like upstate somewhere, he was like, uh, I think we should leave. Like, cause I was just burned out and he just like knew when to pull back. So I think the confidence came from work ethic one and just like, Hey, I put all this time in, I outworked everyone. I felt I deserved it or earned it. And no one really deserves anything, but I felt I put the hours in that I deserved it. Um, you know, doing well, having some success at a young age, and then uh, having positivity around me all the time. Even when I lost, my dad was, oh, we can beat that guy. This is what we, this is what we do. And um, rather than, you know, at times you got to be hard on athletes uh, and critical, but uh, he did it in a way, a very nuanced way of positivity that just worked for me. I needed that. If people that were hard on me, it just... It, I didn't respond well to that, um, even though, you know, everyone needs a critique here and there. But um, so I think it was just work ethic and positivity and having good coaches. So yeah, it's just crazy how uh, rare it is. I feel like I'm I'm constantly trying to build my mental maturity level because I feel like the more mentally mature you are, the more success you're going to have. And you had that at such a young age, like you kind of understood, you know, the harder I work, you know, less, less pressure on me. And, uh, then you expect to win because you're outworking everybody. It was, it, was it your dad that like instilled that in you, like at a super young age, just understanding how to work hard. And when you work hard, um, you know, you're going to have this confidence about you that you just feel like you shouldn't lose anybody because nobody is outworking you. Yeah, I think that's a big piece of it. I think uh, I watched my dad work three jobs, four jobs his whole life. So like I, I would witness the time he put in to provide for his family. And uh, also he would work out with me. Sometimes at a young age, we would lift together. or He'd take me to practice. And um, so like just by doing, I learned that work ethic. Um, and then I guess that was kind of in my DNA. So I was just like, you know, I wanted to do two, three workouts a day. I mean, the, the concern was almost overtraining. Um, and the beauty of wrestling is, as you know, like, 
anyone could win if you put the hours in. You could be tall and skinny. I mean, you could be you know, athletic and strong and short. You could be in between. And you kind of find your niche and you find what works for you. Um, and you exploit that. You can be flexible, strong, anything in between. I mean, look at uh, Ben Askren's a great example <laughs> of a guy. To, I, was well, about to and, say, I was about to name drop him too. Yeah, Ben's great. I mean, and I'm close with Ben. And, um, you know, he found, uh, you know, this skill and he found his technique that no, just no one could beat him. And then he had that, that confidence, right? I mean, he was the most confident guy in college that I knew and he was just unbeatable. So I think that's the beauty of wrestling is like that inner arrogance comes from different places. Uh, sometimes it's the time you've put in. Sometimes it's like uh, laws of attraction, like Conor McGregor, which is, he just keeps willing it and willing it and believing it. And he mm. puts time in and he's athletic. Like yeah. it's a combination. It's different for everyone. But for me, it was just hours in and I just felt I earned it. I deserved this. This is why, you know, I sacrificed this. I didn't go drinking. I didn't do that. Or I, you know, ate well, or, you know, I'm being a good person, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Like I just yeah. convinced myself of this positive self-talk that I just couldn't be beat. And, um, as like, you know, a warrior, a fighter, a combat sports athlete, everyone has some iteration of that. You have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's go back to like elementary school days because I'm blown away how good you were at such an early age. Now I got kids, you know, I got a, I got a son who's wrestling. Um, my son's in fourth grade. Were you playing, were you playing other sports or were you just straight wrestling at that point? I was doing other sports. I kind of did everything growing up. I stopped in high school. My two other sports that I really liked were soccer and baseball. I love baseball because it was just, you had these moments of great intensity when you're making a play, you're up at the plate, you're a pitcher, you know, whatever it is, but you also, it was communal. It was outside. And as a wrestler, we just live in gyms and it's just the worst because you're like inside all day long in these tournaments. And they're like 12 hours sometimes at a young age. And, um, so I stopped everything probably, yeah, like freshman year. It was just so much off-season wrestling, so much training. And I was like, you know, I have a chance at a scholarship and my academics need to be up, um, you know, to, to open the doors to maybe some Ivy League schools and things like that. Um, How would you deal with uh, like all the psychological um, typical issues that a wrestler would deal with, like self-doubt and everything like that um, and, and lack of confidence? especially when you have so much pressure on you, you know, obviously Jesse Jansen, huge name in New York um, was, you know, if someone had got a takedown on you, you know, everybody in the, in the, in the state would be talking about it. And then eventually in the whole country, um, how are you dealing with the self-talk heading into matches that you realize at the end of the day, there's a lot of pressure on me here and I really want to win this. Yeah, it, it was a challenge as the years went on because like there was a record to be beat and I was I had my eye on that. Like I, I wanted to win, you know, everyone, every winner wants to win every time, like yeah. and especially a wrestler. It's just brutal. So I, um, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of like, oh, and, you know, if I, I won counties, I had a shot at, you know, state title in seventh and eighth grade. My best shot was seventh grade and eighth grade. The kid was just better. Um but then when I got to my junior and senior year, the goal like of breaking that record that stood for a long time of winning a fourth state title was like, you know, within reach. Mm. And I remember my senior year, you know, everyone else is like, ah, he's, he's on paper. He should win this easy. But like, you still have that anxiety that, you know, yeah. that concern, that worry. Um, so I just stayed in my routine. You try to like block it out. You try to just be humble and, and, uh, you know, do the same warm up and the same thing, approach every match differently, but it was a challenge. Anyone who tells you different in any big match, when you walk out to a title fight, like you've done it several times and you fought a million times, you've wrestled a lot. Like those feelings are the exact same. 
you just yeah. get maybe better at coping with them and addressing them. Um, and again, it's that self-talk, it's that preparation, it's just keeping things basic. Uh, it's focusing on, you know, what's your first attack or your first move. And then once you're in the, the fight of the match, obviously it's all blur. You're just reacting. It's muscle memory. So it's really just handling, getting up into that moment. Uh, and then, you know, usually once we all get past that, you feel, you feel great. <laughs> yeah. I like throughout my career, I feel like almost every single wrestling match, I, I lost on my own. Like I beat myself a lot of the time, like almost, almost every one of them. I never felt like, oh, this guy's just that much better than me. I always felt like I, you know, the doubt or not working hard enough or whatever it is. I would, I would like, you know, I just couldn't get to the point of, you know, not letting myself beat myself. Um, did you have like the matches that you lost in high school, which I don't think were many. I looked it up. It was like 12 or 13 matches total since seventh grade. Well, what am I, I wrong with that? No, I only, well, I didn't lose in nine to 12, uh, but I lost uh, seventh and eighth grade three total. So I lost once in eighth grade and twice in seventh grade. So three times total you lost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, my bad. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, but maybe it was college. I think, I, I think, college, was college, I, I think yeah, I think career. college I lost, uh, yeah, more. Yeah, 12. Okay, times yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, so the matches that you lost in high school, were any of them self sabotage or were the guy who was just better than you at that time? Uh, well, I avenged one loss. Um, what did I lose twice though? Oh, I lost in States and then I lost to a, a local guy. The one loss was, uh, I think I was better than I beat him like re like right after that. Uh, and I kind of got caught. Yeah. And then the other one might've been a little self-sabotage, like a one, nothing match. It was odd. I usually scored points and I was like, just a weird funky, like I was almost, you get gray or in a haze. And I was like, what's going on right now? It's like a yeah. close call and a takedown. I didn't get. And so those two, they were definitely in reach. Whereas in eighth grade, I think at that point in my career, that guy was a four-time state finalist as well. He was a, he was an animal. Uh, yeah. So I who was that? this guy, Brandon Lehman, who is uh, not well known, but he went to like a junior college. Like he would have been a, you know, all American and a, a threat at a title anywhere he went. He just, I don't know if he had grades or whatever it was, but uh, yeah. he was good. I don't know if I wrestled him 10 times. If yeah, maybe I win two or three at that point in my career. Maybe. Yeah. I think it, he was, I think he was better at that point. Yeah. It blows me away because I've, I interviewed uh, Askren too, and I asked him a similar question. And out of all of his college uh, losses and also his high school losses, he said, "Really, I never—he never really beat himself, which is crazy." I feel like that's very rare um, in in the world of wrestling. I feel like a lot of times the kids, you know, they beat themselves. They, you know, they yeah. kind of self sabotage um, and have confidence issues. And really, like out of anybody I've ever really talked to, you two are like you know, some of the most accomplished wrestlers I've ever talked to. And uh, it didn't really self-sabotage too many times. There were matches for sure. I was thinking, let's see, I'm thinking in college and a few others that I just underperformed, whether that was I screwed up my warm up or something or my confidence was shook. But I don't think it was something habitually that happened to me where I was like, I was so nervous that I blew the match. You know, it, it happened for sure. There were matches that I probably could have won because I didn't do something right or I was, you know, I had a mental funk. Um, yeah. But th there wasn't as many as you'd think. I guess people just beat me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, it's it's that's what you want to do, right? You want to eliminate you you beating yourself, you know, before you step on that mat, you know. And then if the guy's better than you, he's better than you. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it happens a lot to a lot of athletes, and that's why, like, I think um, sports psychology is such a big business. And I don't know if you look at Penn State, but I think they've kind of cracked the code. 
They seem like they all have a good warm up. They get out there. They're really happy. They're really offensive. They all, they were doing some of these like ticks that I think the sports psychologists tell them to do, like tap their knees and stuff. Um, so I think that they've spent a lot of time on it. And I think Kale as a coach has done a really good job of making sure he gets the best performance out of their guys. I don't think a lot of their guys underperform, um, obviously the way, how good they're doing, but at the same time, I just think they're getting, that might be the difference of why they are so good. They have talent, but these guys are really going out and performing their best most of the time. Um, yeah, so maybe, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. I know. Like, I feel like Penn state's really changed that a lot. I know they don't wrestle live that much. They're not killing themselves in the room. A lot of it is like flow state type wrestling where mm-hmm. you're, it's like, hard drilling but letting the other guy be creative with different types of moves and figuring things out uh not really just sticking to your go-to things you know not being afraid to lose a takedown in the room you know just uh just flowing out there and and then again like you, you can see them for their warm-ups and everything it's just they're just going out there and having fun totally know? I think that is, it's, it's their training, um, keeping it light and like the way they, they scrap and they wrestle in the room. I think that that translates into the matches for sure. Yeah. Which is very hard to do. It's easy to say, but very hard to do. Um, I remember there was times like for me when I I was in junior college and I was trying to get recruited by division one, you Mm -hmm. know, schools. And, um, I remember like trying to laugh and trying to smile before matches was so hard for me (laughs) it was like a freaking nightmare i was sick to my stomach because i had a lot of expectations on me and uh i just didn't know how to deal with it you know mentally at that time um and so to see these guys at early and you know early in their careers being able to just go out there and be the best version of themselves is, is it really is awesome to watch were you like that like in high school were you just chilling going into a lot of matches just having fun no, I was pretty serious. Uh, there were moments when I, like some of my better performances when I was able to be a, more, a little more casual, but I was pretty intense and pretty serious. I, there'd be moments when after a match, I could relax a little bit, but like you were, if, like you explained, it was similar. You know, it was kind of like, this was business. It wasn't fun. Like you were yeah. like out there to do a yeah. job. And, uh, and so, but yeah, I don't know. It, I mean, the Iowa team does really well. And a lot, I mean, Spencer's more like uh, lighthearted. It seems Spencer Lee, and he's kind of mm-hmm. great, but some of those guys are super intense, but they win and they're winners and the brands are just animals and they have a different kind of intensity. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, you just kind of have to find what works for you. But I agree. It'd make the sport a little more fun if all we if we were giggling and laughing and having <laughs> going and beating someone's ass. Yeah, that, that would be. It awesome. was just it was hard for me to separate that. Whereas it seems like the Penn State guys are having a freaking hell of a time. I think it was also hard because at that time there wasn't that many people to look to as guys like a Kale Sanderson, where they're telling their athletes to chill out and and have fun and not take it too serious. A lot of the times, the main focus for us was some of the Iowa type mentality. So I didn't think I don't think we really got to see that other side of it, which it 100% works. Obviously, the, the Iowa style, and mm-hmm. you get guys like Brent Metcalf who they just they're going to go out there and they're going to break you. And there's no you know there's no days that you're sick. There's no days that you're hurt. You yeah. it's all in your head, and you better just you know win. Which I had you know I had Tom Ryan who was my coach, so we had that influence on us uh, big yeah. time at Hofstra, which you know is, is great, but it's just different. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. I think it was our error as well. And like, um, and Tom's great, by the way. I love Tom. Oh, he's he, amazing. He's, he texts me about crypto investments about uh, once, <laughs> once, once every couple of weeks. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I just think that was kind of that old school, like work hard, dominate, move on type of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's this, um, you know, we're seeing a bit of um, 
a paradigm shift and like an iteration of how people uh, do this stuff. Staying relaxed in fights actually makes you perform better, it seems, in wrestling matches, fights, uh, which is sounds or seems counterintuitive, right? Like you're supposed to be angry and mad and go out there and like crush someone. Yeah. But yeah. And I feel like the Russians figured that out pretty early on. Like they, they always seemed a way more relaxed than us. We had that mentality yeah. where we had to try to break you, you know, and we're uptight and uh, coiled up and they, they were way more just chill and relaxed. And the way that we would beat them is just like mentally breaking them and like, you know, physically mm-hmm. breaking them. But technical, technically, like I feel like they were way more superior for, for a long time. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think that's kind of what Kale's trying to do. I mean, they were also more well-rounded, right? Like the Russian, the way they trained back in the day was kind of like start with soccer, get agility and footwork. Then they'd move on to like gymnastics and then they would just do technique for a while. And then they would just compete for a while. And then they kind of do that sparring that like Penn State does, which is kind of like drilling, but kind of live, but in between. No one's getting hurt, but like you're constantly in this like flow where you're going chain wrestling the next thing. And um that seems to translate and work in, in competition. Um, and I also think they don't really start them. I, I know there's exceptions, but from like what I've spoke to Volgar about, they don't really start them that early into intense competitions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think uh, like Volgar's sons, I don't think they really wrestled until seventh grade. He would keep them off the mats. They were around it. They knew what wrestling was. They probably oh, okay. understood it on a deep level, but I don't think, do you know, do you, am I wrong? Did you, like, I, I know yeah, George, I, I think Vito definitely, I don't think started, he didn't start competitively until later on. And okay. George definitely, I don't know about Nick. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think they're probably doing cross training and like the gymnastics and the agility, maybe drilling a little bit, but maybe not the intense competition because I think they avoid the burnout, right? They don't want people to be in America. It's like bigger, better, faster, stronger. And your little kids like the peewee, anything peewee soccer, peewee football, peewee wrestling is super intense. Yeah. The parents are super intense. And, um, you know, I remember losses, not because of pressure from my family or coaches, but because of me, like even at a young age being like, it was my life is devastating to lose at like New York States and like nine years old. Mm. And like, it's not yeah, <laughs> by the way, but at that the point, end of the world. Yeah. yeah. But at that point in your life, that is like, that's why you're good because you think it's everything, but yeah. I don't know. That's hard to carry that from that age up until let's say you're like in your early thirties competing for a world title. That's um, and maybe the Russians try to avoid that by starting you a little bit later. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I forgot the name of the book, uh, but it's like called the 10 year rule. You ever hear that? Oh, I think um, it, 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 I think they it did. Up. They did all these studies. It was psychologists did a bunch of studies on just athletes around the world, and what they realized is that about the ten year mark of being passionate passionate about something is where you peak, and then you start falling uh-huh. off. Like you can only be passionate for something for up to ten years. I think is what they figured out. Um, okay. Honestly, obviously, you know, you you have that certain passion, and if you get so 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 good, I mean, you could still beat people beneath you know that you've you know surpassed. But I don't think you're gonna keep improving at the level that you were improving during that ten year period. Yeah, that makes sense. So it makes yeah. sense. Like the Russians, if you could start later, if you peak ages, if you want to peak at like twenty something years old, you really yeah, you really shouldn't start going until thirteen, you know, fourteen years old if you want to peak around that age. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to check the book out. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, you want to have the infrastructure in place that like you're working on things, you're becoming more athletic. Um, in America, it's different, right? Because the college is such an emphasis. 
Um, so it's like, uh, you know, he's gotta be good sports cause he's gotta get into a good college. And if he starts too late, then he won't get recognized and then he mm. misses his opportunity. Yeah. So I think that pressure is tough and why maybe there's such this emphasis on starting as quickly as you can and being as successful as you can at yeah. a young age, but it probably isn't good for, um, the successes at a pure athlete, uh, separating college, yeah. uh, I would think. And it also could be an issue with like character building and habit building. Like you want to kind of start that at a young age. You want to teach your kid how to work hard and to, uh, you know, learn how to lose and learn how to win at an early age. I feel like that is a, a great thing to, uh, to have as you go through life and go through high school and go through, you know, college. And mm -hmm. so to take that chance where your kid might start falling into, you know, bad you know, habits you know, that you can't get out of, you know, you start, you know, you, you have a developing brain as a kid. And if you start having these habits, you know, how hard it, hard it is to get over stuff that you, that yeah. happened when you were a kid, you know, it's just, it's almost impossible for, for a lot of people. Um, so it's, it is, it is tough. I guess there is no like a hundred percent recipe to do this. You know, I, you've had like, look at, um, like, I love the idea of being able to chill and let your kids you know, just have fun and not and let them do other sports. But then you look at guys like David Taylor and, mm -hmm. and Dake. These guys have been obsessed with wrestling since an early age, and it's it yeah. paid off for them. It's but true. how many other kids are there that kind of were similar thing, similar uh, experience, but then burned out? It's Tons. hard to put like a number. Yeah. There's probably way more of those guys, obviously. Definitely. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's it's this, um a delicate balancing act for sure. And you look at like Carrie Colot, who had a really intense dad and a really intense training, but he, that guy could handle anything. I mean, he just is a workhorse and an animal. And he was, in my opinion, the greatest high school wrestler probably of all time, maybe Jimmy Carr, but Carrie Colot was just incredible. Um, but yeah, I think burnouts is a real thing. And this takes a really special athlete to be able to handle that workload and that competition. I think David Taylor is one of those guys that kind of always was just cerebral about the sport and wanted to learn and love being around everything wrestling. And he was really positive. Even if you look at like when he was a little kid, these interviews, he just was always kind of excited and ha happy about competing. And maybe Dake was that way when he was young too. I, I don't know. But. Yeah, that mental maturity. I feel like there's some exceptional people like you and Dake and Taylor and, and yeah. And even Askren and that that have that mental maturity at a young age, that's so rare. And it's you get all these parents that they want their kids to have this, but it's hard to figure it out because you get the books like the ten year rule, you know, that comes out and you read that, then you look, then you then you yeah. see exceptions like that you and Dave and Taylor and them, and you don't know which way to go. You get dads who push their kids a lot and they actually do make it. And then you get dads who, you know, just aren't even involved really, just are happy for their kid and then they make it. Uh, and you get both sides you have. And as a parent, it's like, what are you supposed to do? You know? Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I guess you get the feel for the kid and, and kind of, you know, find a happy medium, but you're right. Like I remember, I remember being on vacation, uh, and there was a picnic bench. We were like camping out in Long Island. Uh, we never really went on real vacations, but my dad took apart the bench and created a bench press out of it. Like there's the two, three panels, right? He took the two side ones out. So there's a middle panel. And then I, I had to pack the weights in the pickup truck. So that's crazy to anyone else. You know, you think about it, but that was like a normal thing, but he made it fun. I didn't even know I was working out. What you know, age was this? Just pretty young. I mean, not a teenager. Gotcha. So maybe 10 to 12. I mean, I was lifting young. So like, it's just funny. That's crazy, right? Like there's worse stories with Carrie Colot and these people, yeah. but like things like that would happen all the time. And I was just like, oh, it's fun. He kind of made it a game where it wasn't like, oh, you got to go lift. Like, otherwise you're going to be a loser. It was more like, yeah. hey, I'm going to go work out. You want to do something.
I mean, you, you are always a strong kid, and I feel like especially in high school wrestling, being strong uh, is is a big part of it. Especially being uh, so young, you I mean, winning winning championships in in, in seventh grade against people that were way older and, and more mature than you, but. Uh, technically, you obviously were there, but also strength-wise, you you were there. Were you were you big into strength training from like at an early age? Yeah, I think because the rule in New York is you could wrestle high school uh, when you're in middle school, and maybe that's why my dad said, "Ah, maybe we should start lifting so you're ready." Technically, he felt maybe I was good enough and um, I was going to be big enough for the lightest weight class. But um, so yeah, I start. I don't know how I feel about it now. Like, I don't feel it caused any damage, but it's tricky, right? You're developing. You don't really want to be going crazy lifting. They say it's not always healthy, but I think you can do now, you know, plyometrics and body weight stuff, some Olympic lifts if it's controlled and not crazy. Um, I don't regret it. I did. I lifted, I was lifting at a pretty young age, you know, like real lifts for sure. And how, uh, like how often and like what were um, you doing? Let's see, probably. I mean, nine and 10, at least three days a week. So nine and 10, were you going to a gym or just at your house? We had stuff in the garage. So yeah, so it was yeah we had enough. We so had you enough get stuff. home from school and then is it right to lift or how'd you figure that out? Yeah. I mean, it was be three nights a week after schoolwork, after, you know, usually a wrestling practice or baseball or soccer, depending on the season. Uh, and then we just go down and uh, blast some Led Zeppelin and uh, get a lift in. So, and was this your, was your dad not pushing you at this age, like to do that? That was something or it was, or did he have to he get somehow, on you? He's just like a, yeah, he was a wizard on convincing you that it was a good idea and it was fun. Gotcha. And like, yeah, it was, you know, at that age, it wasn't like forced, you know, it was kind of like, Hey, I'm going to go lift. You should come. Well, should we go downstairs and lift? And I, then it got competitive. I compete with him. Like, well, if he's lifting, I got to lift. Even at that age, he almost made it like, not like he was beating me to compete, but he made it like a fun game almost. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I would do it the same way. Not, not that I am scarred from it, but yeah. uh, he just found a way to make it more fun versus like some of the dads are like, you got to go downstairs and lift and him doing it with me helps too. You have a fat out of shape dad. who's like, uh, you got to go get your lift in. He's like eating nachos and watching you. That's makes it hard. It probably makes it harder. That is true. Um, and my dad would, uh, you know, he never asked me to do something he wouldn't do. And, um, I thought he kind of convinced me it was going to make, you know, me win. I wanted to win so bad, you know? So it was, it was that too. Yeah. All right, so for all you dads out there, just make sure you do it with the kids, and then they'll do it with you every time. I mean, yeah. Were you not into like video games when you were yeah, a kid? I did. Yeah, I played Nintendo all the time. And it was yeah. your dad not like that wasn't keeping you off of uh, like your workouts. That never became an issue. No, I, I don't know. I found time for a little bit of everything, kind of being well rounded, somewhat, you know. Um, but yeah, I played video games with my friends, and one of my great friends is a guy named Mike Torriero, who uh, Long Island guy. And um, yep, yep, he beat me too. He lat dropped me in the Longwood freestyle tournament. <laughs> oh, is that right? I'm gonna have to tell him. He'll <laughs> yeah, love yeah. that story. Yeah, I think he knows. Uh, <laughs> he knows. Yeah, I'm sure he's cherishing that video. He's, yeah. probably, le- he's probably leaking it uh, all over. It was definitely a good one. Um, but anyway, so we kind of like all trained together. We had a little group, you know, and, um, you know, since we were real young, so six, seven years old. And then, uh, but we'd have, we'd have a lot of fun too. So like I said, like, that's the difference, right? If all you're doing is training and there's, there's, it's relentless and there's no hobbies or outlets or fun, then it's real brutal. So, yeah. but you can train hard, uh, as long as you have some of those breaks. And we definitely did. You know, we had those breaks. You guys had, you guys had some crew out in Suffolk County. Like when you were in high school with uh, Patchovich, you had Ryan Maurer, Torriero. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else am I missing? Uh, that was like studs. 
Yeah, the more the, the Morbillo family uh, were really good. Um, who else was good? I mean, William Floyd had a bunch of good guys. Um, were you yeah, wrestling Mauer and Ma- Massa was in Nassau? Yeah, were you guys all getting together and wrestling? We were, yeah. Mauer and that yeah. team, they had a bunch of guys in the team that were pretty good at William Floyd, and that was kind of close to where I grew up, uh, Shore yeah. and William Floyd. Mm-hmm. So we would train uh, for sure um, during the year and definitely in the off season. We would train a bit. So. And any dudes that like gave you a hard time in the room in high school that you have to come out and tell the world right now? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Let me try to be as uh, real as possible. I mean, I lost matches. At the same time. No, I lost matches. But like, uh, yeah, I mean, Mike was a great training partner. Mike's a two-time state champ and we traveled together and he was literally, you know, my best friend and best training partner. So Mike would challenge me and, and we pushed each other a lot. Um, but yeah, there's a host of other guys. I mean, our team was always strong. My cousin wrestled for us. He was good. Um, and then, um, you know, like the Mowers and those guys were always uh, talented as well. I mean, what, what but, age were you, did you start going to actually wrestle like college kids? I was breaking. Well, I was cheating a bit and breaking the rules back in the day. Yeah. I would go, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's old. they can't get me now. They can't yeah. get me now. It's no. Not Past necess- seven years, you're good. Yeah, uh, no, not necessarily. I would just do like the open practices, but um, yeah. pretty young, you know, as young as uh, eighth or ninth grade. Are you kidding me? Wrestling yeah. live with the kids, the guys in college? Yeah, I remember doing trips to Maryland to wrestle with the Maryland guys uh, with the, my mentors. Kind of the reason I went to Harvard, this guy, Andy McNerney, who was like an uncle or second dad. He was just an amazing guy and uh, All-American for Harvard. But at the time, he lived in D.C. and he had trained at Maryland. And I was probably, yeah, in middle school at the time. Uh, and we would go train with him. And then there would be like the 125 pounder for Maryland and stuff and, and some high school kids that were really good um, that would train with us. So. At what what at, I mean, were you at the point in eighth grade where you were getting takedowns on the one twenty five pound guy from Maryland? Was it was it actually competitive at that point? Probably not. No, I don't think. Probably not. I don't remember. I mean, it was high school kids too. It's hard to remember which guys I was with. I was ch- shocking to the point where they were like, "Huh, you know, like what's going on here?" Yeah. Um, but definitely in high school, I was making it very competitive with college guys. Um, like junior, and, and senior, like junior, senior, senior year. Certainly, junior, senior year. Yeah, you know, maybe a little younger, depending on the guy. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. so when you're wrestling high school kids after having that experience of going with college kids, is that one of the big things that gave you confidence? Just knowing that, like, this is just a high school kid now. I'm, I'm smoking this guy. Yeah, but also anxiety because I'm like, if I lose a high school kid, I could like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you're like, <laughs> then your your bar, your benchmark changes, right? So yeah. you're like, oh, I could maybe do okay in college, I can maybe place at a college tournament right now. I can't be losing to a high school kid. Yeah. But the styles are different, and it's just one of those things where you can lose anyone at any time, uh, you know, within a realm. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, it did. It gave me a lot of confidence uh, because I was you know getting better, and then you know had some benchmarks to say, oh, if I'm doing well against this guy, I should beat these guys, type of thing. Yeah. Um, and, um, senior nationals comes around. How'd you, how'd the senior nationals go? Good. Uh, that one, uh, I won and it was, um, yeah, it was a good tournament, but I, you know, cause I had that weird turn on top, right. The, the crab rider tilt, you want to call it <laughs> in New York, everyone knew it. Right. Cause that's kind of where you wrestle most of your yeah. matches. And it was like, you know, everyone scouted it. So it got t- a little bit more difficult to get it, even though you could do it if you're really good at something but it was really well scouted. But then when I went to the national tournament, it's like no one knew what the heck was going on. So that tournament was actually like a nice one for me because it kind of threw people off. Um, yeah. So I scored a you know, a lot of points, you know, with the tilt. Uh, so <laughs> you, there, pinned, yeah. you pinned everybody, tech them. What'd you do? Pretty close. Yeah. Uh, 
I think I might have majored one guy or, or not, but yeah. But it was Jeez. it was fairly dominant, yeah. <clears throat> Where'd you get that? Where'd that move like when did that start becoming uh part of your repertoire? Pretty young, I think within seventh grade. Uh the guy the, the guy I'm talking about, Andy McNerney, uh it was his, you know. So that was oh, his invention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's funny. It's kind of a mix between riding legs and like a traditional crab ride uh on top where you're kind of behind the legs and then uh his own twist on it. A little bit of Gene Mills, if you I don't know if you know Gene Mills, yeah. but he was a Syracuse yeah. stud. So absolutely. Um but yeah, I mean that was he was uh my Yoda. He gave me all the secrets, all the moves to win. I love it. Um yeah. so let's talk about uh when you had to decide um what college you were going to. How was what was that experience like and where else were you looking besides Harvard? <laughs> I was looking at a lot of places because, you know, as a kind of blue collar kid growing up, like, you know, I watched competitor Supreme from Iowa back in the day. If you've seen that and you like idolize at that time, Iowa was the college of wrestling in the nineties yeah. and the late eighties. Yeah. It was like, it worked hard. And that, that was like my mantra because I didn't know any better. Right. Yeah. So, and I still love those guys, but, uh, so I looked at all big 10 schools, took trips. I mean, I looked at Hofstra cause I love Tom and a long Island guy, um, Ohio state, um, Penn state, um, Iowa, um, yeah, recruited by most places. Yeah. Um, and then all the Ivies as well, you know, uh, that door, that, uh, because of this guy, Andy, I'd like, I was like, ah, oh, I didn't know like smart guys were good at wrestling. I didn't, I, honestly, I didn't even, I also I, didn't know I was I, smart. So I'm I like, think wait, you, you mean- changed. I think you actually might've changed wrestling I, now, ever since you, bro, everyone's doing good in school. Yeah, do you, well, do you, have you ever thought of that? Do you, have you ever put that together where like that changed? Because I feel like when we were growing up, athletes like wrestlers like we focused on wrestling it wasn't like the cool thing to be good in school too yeah, yeah no i mean we were like 80s kids so we were like you know tough guys and like it's yeah. not very inclusive and like driving irox Z's basically yeah so yeah it shifted i'm not saying i'd certainly not taking credit for the shift but my was part of a shift of timing where these guys there were guys before me that were amazing. It was just less, right? The top recruits weren't traditionally going to either of these schools. One, Cornell was doing pretty well. Penn did well. We had Brandon Slay and Brett Motter. These are phenomenal guys in Ivy League wrestling, right? So, mm. but then you did see a huge move where like Princeton, I mean, Cornell's the top two. I think they took second once or something. It's yeah. like crazy. They could win a national title. Ivies were never a threat to win. Now, all of a sudden, between Princeton and Cornell and Penn and Harvard's, yeah, we're doing better now. Um, Absolutely. You know, these are threats. So, like, guys were like, hey, this could be a vehicle. What I preach at Beat the Streets, the nonprofit I work with, is basically, you know, accessibility and a vehicle to a better life through education. And, um, you know, wrestlers can be smart, too. You know, we have the yeah. discipline. You don't have to be genius IQ. You just have to put the time in to learn. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm excited that we've seen that shift. I think yeah. Ivy, Ivy League wrestling is very good for the sport and the sustainability of the sport. So, I agree. Um, when did you make that shift? Were you did, were you very were you focused on school since like you know freshman in high school, or was that something you picked up later on? Were, I were was you- just um, just really competitive. I didn't like being embarrassed because I'm vain, and I just wanted to win. So I was like, that was originally the motivation to do well in school. I just want, didn't want to be the dumb guy in the class. And then yeah. my parents also had accountability too. It wasn't like if you don't get all A's, you can't eat lunch or dinner, you know. But it was kind of like. Yeah, if you started getting C's or you know B minuses a lot and like D's or something, there, there was definitely a conversation to be had. Yeah. Um, but again, they they weren't really pushy. They were just good at instilling values through the how they lived, and also being present. My parents were around, you know, and they yeah. were they were interested in their kids' lives. Um, so 
you know, there wasn't this big emphasis on college education. It was not a history of any Ivy League people in our family. And it's not something they even thought about until wrestling opened that door for me. And that yeah. guy, Andy, opened that door. And then, you know, my brother went to Harvard. My sister went to Princeton. So you see that, like, that shift, that legacy shift, and um, which I love because that's that can happen with anyone. Um, you know, once you know the system and you see the opportunity, it's, it's yeah. life it's life changing. So, but there's no question at that point, wrestling was your life, though, right? Wrestling was your your number one passion, right? Going into college, and yeah, t- typically Harvard wasn't the school that's going to create a national champion, right? At that time, how did you deal with that battle inside you, knowing that you could go to an Iowa where you know, more likely chance of you having the right partners and the right coaches and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now this new element of life where like, no, li- there's something after wrestling, you know, and uh, going to a school like Harvard's going to open up more doors for you. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it was really hard because at 17, 18 years old, you don't care about any of that stuff. You're yeah. Whatever's right in front of you is what you care about. And like winning a national title, going to an Olympics and winning Olympic gold is all I cared about since I was, you know, six years old. Yeah. So I, yeah, it was a tough decision, but I felt at that point as like, hey, our school wasn't big on wrestling. It was a small public school. It wasn't Blair Academy or St. Anne's at the time, which were the, like the big wrestling schools nationally. I stayed where I was. I did what I did and I accomplished it and felt that I'm going to do it there. And it'd be nice to be the first to do it there versus the 50th to do it at Iowa. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, maybe I could have snuck in another title or something if I was there. Probably not. I, I think Harvard was great to me. And they gave me all the, the best coaches and partners. And um, it was just a great marriage of getting, you know, an education that was probably just out of my reach without wrestling. And then, you know, fulfilling, you know, athletic goals that I wanted to fulfill. But it was, um, it was a hard decision though. Now it's not a hard decision. You know, I was like, um, you know, like, of course like you're mature. And like, if I had yeah. kids, I'd be like, you'd be silly not to do that. Yeah. But at the time, even my parents weren't sure they didn't know. They yeah. didn't know. They don't know like how much that could change, you know, kind of your opportunities. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was tough. Yeah. And your dad, I'm sure was listening to all these different wrestling dads and they know your potential and then like, he's going to go to Harvard. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it was a risk. I mean, at the time, although I don't want to say that because the Harvard coaches, you know, like it, they were great. <laughs> yeah. But like you just didn't know. There wasn't like to your point, there wasn't a huge track record. There was plenty of All-Americans. We were doing pretty well, but there wasn't national cha- like a legacy of national champions. There was one in 1938, I think, and then none. So, mm. but it kind of feels good to be the one to kind of like t- to do it when, it's, when you're not expected to do it. There's also a little bit less pressure, right? Yeah. Hey, they don't think I'm supposed to win. Well, yeah. let me prove it. Let me go prove them wrong. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of nice too. What was it like going to Harvard? Like if you had to explain it to someone who's never been to an Ivy League school before, what was that? What was that like for you? For me, it was extremely intimidating in the beginning um, because I felt the sports stuff wasn't super intimidating. You know, I was like hardest working guy in the room off, you know, always. And um, I had pretty good success early on. So that was like seamless, but just yeah. the, um, yeah, you know, I'm a kid that grew up in a small town from Long Island with not a lot of money and like five kids in one bathroom house. And like, we had everything. It was not like saying I had it rough, but my point is, is like now I'm in a room with a guy from Kenya, Austria, you know, from China, they're speaking all different languages. They also speak English. Some of them are like trust fund legacy, the richest people in the world. Some of them go on to run Facebook. Some of them are Olympians and this and that. And you're like, what the hell is going on? I'm just like an idiot from Long Island. That's trying to, trying to figure it out. And I remember being in class. Like I just, in the beginning, I did like, didn't want to comment. Cause I was like, yeah, I'm going to sound stupid, you know? Yeah. And like, 
with confidence and knowledge and like, you know, by the next few years in, you're like, ah, oh, you're hitting your stride. But for me, um, yeah, just honestly, it was, it was intimidating for sure. The academics were intimidating, the, the cultural stuff, you know, and it wasn't obvious. Like if you were there, you wouldn't notice that, but like internally, yeah, it was a little intimidating, some of the stuff, but sports helped integrate. And then socially it was fun. Um, it's an amazing city at Boston and Cambridge. You know, mm-hmm. it's the most academic it city. There. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably the most academic city, you know, in the United States as far as colleges and institutions. There's so many colleges and um institutes that are for science and research. It's a special place and it's a cool city. So I'm I feel super fortunate and happy um to have had the opportunity. But uh candidly, it was it was certainly an adjustment in the beginning. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, just like you were so passionate about wrestling and spending, you know, every minute you could, you can, you had during the day to focus on ways to win and become the best version of yourself. That's probably what everyone was doing there, but more towards academia, you know, like how to be the best business person in the world or, you know, how to, you know, create some type of, you know, whatever. But, um, and then all yeah. of a sudden you're diving in there in the same class as these people. Like if I talk, this guy's going to think I'm an idiot. So was there a lot of catching up to do? Like just like with the way you spoke and, you know, just to get yourself comfortable. I tried to kick the Long Island accent at some point. <laughs> Did you really? So, Were you trying nah, to get rid of the Long Island accent? No, no. Don't I really, you I tell really, me that. Yeah, I kid. I kid. I didn't really. <laughs> I did not. But um, yeah, um, it was a little overwhelming catching up. I didn't really, you know. I took this writing class three times. That might've been the catching up. Some people, some people take that class once. I took it three times. <laughs> it wasn't because I wasn't passing, but you had a choice to like, took it in summer school. It's expository writing. It's like a classic, um, you know, uh, hazing type writing class. So like Henry Kissinger got a C in it. I think, I think what they do is they t- you come in and the first paper you write is always a C, no matter who you are. And then they slowly g- give you a B B plus, maybe an A because they want to show progress and they want to kind of beat you down. So mm. like you could have been some genius that wrote an A paper and the first paper, they're just not going to give it to you. So it was kind of funny, but I, um, there's a little bit of catching up. I probably had to do more studying and reading than the guy that came from, um, you know, the fanciest private schools, you know, in the yeah. country and over or somewhere like that. Um, but then you get comfortable, you find your stride. Uh, I was really regimented on my schedule. So like, yeah, it wasn't always, a work, but it was always on time and it was solid. And I negotiated ahead of time. I'd hand work in early because I would come in the class because they didn't love athletes at that time. They didn't dislike them, but it was like, there was no excuse. You could be cutting weight. You could be traveling. You could be, you know, competing Thursday, Friday, Saturday in the class on Thursday. It's not an excuse absence. So I'd be like, all right, listen, this is my, my wrestling schedule for the year. I want to hand the papers in early or do this and that. And most of the professors, um, you know, uh, felt that um, I guess they respected it. So they basically said, okay, you know what? You can hand it in later. You can hand it in this time because I went out and like, you know, just was upfront about everything. Gotcha. So um, yeah, it was one way to handle kind of like the grueling schedule during the season. Then out of the season, you know, you have some more time. But Yeah. I mean, so in high school, I don't think it was, I, I would uh, I would assume that high school was way easier than going to Harvard, right? As, uh, in terms of academics. Right. As far as yeah. the time that you have to put in. So juggling that with with still having the same uh, goals for yourself in wrestling, still trying to become a national champion, you know. Uh, yeah. How were you able to juggle that mentally, knowing that, like, all right, I'm putting all this extra time into academics because I know it's going to be good for the rest of my life. And I'm trying to catch up with all these people so I don't become embarrassed because you don't like to be embarrassed. <laughs> 
how were you able to juggle all that? And like, did it get become frustrating? Did it, you know, get to the point where you were regret, regretful of going there? No, I mean, definitely there's moments of frustration, I think, with a heavy workload, um, especially if things don't go your way, you have a bad match, you know, you're cutting weight, um, you don't do well on a test or paper. Um, the biggest thing was just being like any wrestler knows uh, or any disciplined person was just schedule, right? So like staying to the schedule, you have your morning workout, you go to class, you go to lecture, um, you usually get a little bit of break, um, and then you have practice again, and then work, and then I would go lift at night back then. Uh, so it was a full schedule, but there was more freedom and autonomy to your schedule. So in high school, you knew you had to be in, you know, what, what's it, 8, 7.30 to 2.30 or 3, and then you had your practice. There was no breaks, really. You had lunch, but not, you know, you basically just had to do this thing. Yeah. In college, right, some classes you have two days a week or not, and, like, you had more flexibility to curate um, the schedule so that you could get everything done. So I liked that because I felt that I could be more efficient and make sure that I was being, you know, proactive about all that stuff and, um, getting everything done. Um, so I didn't find once I got my rhythm, I wasn't too, uh, too frustrated or worried about it. Gotcha. All right. Let's, let's fast forward. You, you win, you win nationals at Harvard. You accomplish your goal. Uh, three-time college All-American, four-time college All-American. Three. Yeah. Three, three-time college All-American. So accomplish things that, you know, obviously the majority of people can never imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're graduating Harvard university. What's, What's the next step for you? I knew I wanted to train for the Olympics. So um, 2008 was the goal. I, um, so I decided to take a job in Boston, kind of helping like as an internship, helping this like uh, property management company. So I did that for a little while to get a little life experience while I was training and a volunteer coach, like everyone does. Like mm -hmm. now it's the regional training centers didn't really exist, but we kind of had that. We had a, a donor that brought in some great coaches and athletes for us. So I knew I'd be part of that uh, program a bit. Um, so I was training at Harvard. I was competing. I was traveling internationally and in domestically and freestyle. I, uh, went to at this time, I don't know if they still have it, but it was called the university world games, not the university worlds. It was like all athletes. It wasn't just wrestling. It was like a mini Olympics mm -hmm. and it actually was a competitive tournament for us. It was guys that were silver in the senior worlds, the real worlds that year where Bill Zadick, I think beat the guy. And then, um, a couple bronze in the Olympics. So it was a great weight class and that's 2005. And I won and I kind of won with ease. So people are like, Oh, you know, maybe this guy has a shot of being our next Olympian. You know, I was young, I was just finishing school and, um, things were going well. Uh, fast forward a couple months and then I was wakeboarding out in Long Island and, uh, I was doing some tricks and landed and I broke this weird bone in my foot. It's called a Liz Frank break. It's named after like Napole one of Napoleon's like uh, generals in the army because people would fall out of the stirrups of like horses and they would just break their foot weird. Mm. What happens is there's a ligament tear and then it spreads apart and then it's a mess. You lose like spring off your foot and the arch. Gotcha. Actually, Kyle Dake had the same surgery. And when mm. I told him like what I did and who to go to, because it was a rare injury no one had known about. Gotcha. So the reason I tell you this story is because it sidelined me for a long time because they was mistreated, misdiagnosed and no one's fault other than they just didn't get it. And they treated me with like a broken foot. So ah, eight weeks, you'll be fine. Eight weeks later, I tried to run on a treadmill. I just couldn't do anything with this foot. It just wouldn't, couldn't do a calf raise, couldn't jump. I was like, I don't think it's healed. Like, I don't know what's going on. So I went to get another opinion, my third opinion at this point. And they were like, no, you have this Liz Frank ligament tear and break. You have to have surgery. I was like, all right, well, who can do it? 
So I find this guy in Baltimore, Mercy Medical Center, who's like the best, this cool South African guy with like an entourage of, uh, of people following him around. And he did like Ty Law and like Terrell Owens and their ankles. So I was like, all right, these guys are got real money, real athletes. He's probably the guy. Yeah. So he fixes it. But like that sidelined me for like well over a year and a half. Um, and then I started getting back into training and started competing. Uh, I did an internship on Wall Street during that time. So I was like, hey, this is really like, an existential crisis. Like I can't just be an athlete forever. And like, I can't do that right now. So, um, so it was good though. Cause it opened my eye to like, you know, life after sports, which wasn't something I had that much of at this point mm. in my life. And then I got back into training and, um, had some big wins. Were you uh, just doing like lifting and stuff to try to stay active and keep your strength yeah. going? Is that, yeah, about, which, that's what we were down to swimming, lifting rehab, uh, I had a stim thing on my leg. So my muscle didn't completely atrophy. Um, and then I, it made me get real heavy though, which sucks because I was like making 145 and I'm light now, but I was like one, almost 180. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And that's normal for guys cutting weight and UFC and stuff, but yeah. like, yeah, it was, it was big and bulky. So it took me a while to trim that down and get it under control again. Yeah. Um, came back, went to the Olympic trials, lost, but you know, I, I never really got my footing pun intended, no. uh, after that, but I did have some wins after that. Like I think Freyer was our Olympian. I had a win over Jared, uh, right when I came back. So it was like realistic, but I didn't have the consistency, um, to just win it, you know, gotcha. but, uh, who'd you lose yes, to? I lost, uh, and this is, this trials. is the OA trials we're talking yeah, for the exactly. Olympics. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I lost. So you were out, you were out completely for 07 for the world, yep. world trials and stuff. Yeah. Oh, six gotcha. and seven. I didn't get to go to either gotcha. one. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I um, Larkin lost to Larkin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No yeah. Stud. You you wrestled yeah. in college a lot too, right? Yeah, I had a winning record on against Eric, but he is a stud, and he's always a nice guy. So, uh, but that one, he even said he was like, it felt like, yeah, something was off. Like he, you know, after that match, so. he told he told you you felt like crap. You didn't feel like you yeah. didn't feel like the Jesse Jansen. I'm, I'm used to wrestling. He's like, thanks for the easy win. Slap me around. I was like, oh great. <laughs> um, but yeah, so no, I mean. No regrets. It's a, you know, it's a bitter, it's always a bitter uh, pill to swallow when, you know, winning is what you want be on the yeah. team. But yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot um, of other things that went into it that were uh, served me in life. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'll say. Well, I will say like uh, all of Long Island was watching you all of Long Island watched your entire career from high school to, to college and, um, and everyone's watching now. So it's, it's awesome where, where you're going. Um, so Talk to me. How how hard was that to finally now you're letting go of wrestling for the first time in your life and now fully moving into another another chapter of your life? Yeah, it was re it was really it was hard. Yeah, it was pretty hard. I mean that transition. I talked to a lot of athletes about this, um, and I have friends that run the Concussion Foundation, and mm. I'll tie I'll tie this together and why I'm saying that is yeah. Why are you looking at me when you say concussion? <laughs> you're not. You're you're back. You sound great. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. You're all over it. Yeah. I mean. Because people talk about PTSD from concussions and athletes. And mm. I think some of that trauma is actually an identity issue. And they do studies about this, right? So like I, my identity was an athlete for such a long time. And that transition to something else, to have that same passion and wake you up every day and to chase it like there's nothing else in the world that like soldiers have this issue, right? A lot of athletes, professional athletes that are famous have this issue because all, right, all of a sudden you got to be a normal guy. You were, you know, you walk into the restaurant, everyone knows who you are and you're, you know, you're the, the world champ, you're the Super Bowl champ. And then now you're a guy working a business job, or you're an analyst. It's a little bit different. And some people make that transition really well and they adjust perfectly. A lot don't. Yeah. And I think athletes suffer from that a lot. I did. It was hard. I mean, I knew I was going to have the same passion and work ethic for something else, but 
yeah, you're going into a corporate job now where you are the low guy in the totem pole and some guy who's like, uh, you know, a trust from guy from Princeton's telling you to go get his fucking coffee. And you're like, Guy, I could crush you. Like, what yeah, do you say? Yeah, but you can't say that because you take, this is the you world. Take, do you, have, you don't even have cauliflower ear, really, do you? Um, this one is oh, drained a lot. It's drained okay. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you. I mean, you look like a tough guy, you know. But you're you're also pretty, so it's hard. They just think yeah. they could run all over you. I wish. Yeah. Um, but that's just the way it is, though, right? You get like, you know, that's the hierarchy and the bureaucracy of, and everyone has to do it. Yeah. And it's not offensive. It's just the way it works. I think we're getting better as not having to like haze people or make them do silly things yeah, yeah but like i got like if you a wrestler has a chip in his shoulder right mm-hmm. i don't know if you do but most do right yes you just it's a respect thing it's a loyalty thing it's a tough guy thing and you're like in the beginning that's an adjustment you're going into yeah. the real world and you're like oh i gotta like do what this guy says and mm-hmm. like he's not really being that nice about it yeah so it wasn't just that right but it's just something new and you have to like have that passion so for me it was uh, i i'm happy you know, I did it. And like what I'm doing now, I'm really, I wake me up in the morning. I'm real passionate about it, but um, certainly it was an adjustment, especially since, yeah, I didn't win the Olympic gold. So you're always a little bit bitter for a while and you have to like, you have to mourn that loss. Yeah. It's like anything else. It's, a, it's, you have to mourn it and deal with it and then um, decide you're moving on and, and, you know, find other purposes and stuff. Did it just kind of just come over time? The, the uh, realization that, all right, I'm not a wrestler anymore. Um, that's chapters done. You've obviously had a great career, but now has to be something. It's it's going to be something else, and I want this to be. I want to be just as passionate about this as I was about wrestling because I know I'm going to be suce- successful. Because just like you're successful in wrestling, you know you could transfer right over. Um, yeah. Was it overnight type thing, or was it just like over time? It just slowly started clicking, and you adapted to it. It wasn't overnight because I felt I could still win a little bit, you know? So it's like one of those things, like still staying in shape. Like, ah, I'm not going to wrestle again. Or I'm not going to fight. I still got my money on you with like a bunch of wrestlers out there. I still got my money <laughs> on you. You might not even have it on yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm with yeah. Jesse. I'm making a comeback. I'm making yeah. a comeback. Let's but go. that was the point. Like you never really let it go. Like, you know, yeah. like I work out now. I box now. Like, like I'm going to fight or wrestle someone. Yeah, but that's good because it keeps you in shape. Yeah, yeah. But you're not really going to do that. So it's like one of those things where it's yes it's slow it wasn't overnight and it's, gotcha. i think any wrestler would probably tell you the same thing it's is like there any advice any advice that you that you would give somebody who's going through that time period of their life where they're trying to make a transition uh that is difficult um stay really busy and even if the thing that you're working on isn't like your dream job like just do it because it'll lead to the next thing. You know what I'm saying? What happens is a lot of these guys get a little complacent, like, Oh, I could do this. I could do that. I could do that. And there's a lot of options, but like, well, I'm not that passionate about this. I'm not that passionate about that. I was like, well, dive into one thing. It's like the worst decision is no decision. A bad decision you could fix, you learn from it. But the worst decision is no decision. So just Mm. jump at it. Mm, That could lead to another opportunity. And then eventually, you know, once you're on the path, you're going to find the path but you got to get on the path. And I think that there's moments in my life where ah, I probably should have just jumped at certain things. And I didn't. And um, yeah, I don't know if that's like a great answer, but that's how I, that's how I feel. I think. No, like, I think that is a great answer. You yeah. know, just, just it's, it almost, you could, you could draw a parallel between that and like sports in general, uh, not being afraid to fail. Just, I think the thing yeah. that holds people back is like, I'm not that passionate about this because I, now if, if I go and I decide to do something that I'm not that passionate about, I may not be as good as I was in my sport or whatever else you were doing, but just jump in. And yeah. if anything, you you learn, you know, you learn from it uh, and you only got to have regrets from things that you didn't do, yeah. you know? And um, it's such a good point. And it makes me think of uh, something I went through, which was that 
I thought I was going to, you know, I was one of the best in the world at one point at this thing. And I didn't even want to do certain hobbies because I was like, I can't be the best in the world at it. Well, I don't understand. It's so arbitrary. Why would someone not run a marathon? Are you going to win it? Yeah. Are you going to yeah. beat the Kenyan or not? Like, yeah. <laughs> what's the yeah. deal? Yeah. So for a while, I got past that because I understood the purpose of those things, which was, you know, it's regimented. It's an accomplishment. There was like having hobbies is really healthy. The community of it's really healthy, you know, participating with people. Like there's so much you get out of those things that in the beginning, when I left as an egotistical wrestler, I was like, well, that's stupid. Why would I yeah. do that? Like, you can't win it. Why yeah. would you do it? And I like, struggle with that still. I like, I like playing golf. Like it's hard for me just to play golf. Like, unless I'm going to do this a hundred percent and try to become the best at it. And then you have yeah. to have the mindset that no, you're not actually going to be the best at this. You got to just like right. be another guy who shows up to the golf course and you know tries right. to be halfway decent. It's like a hard mindset to to have. Yeah, because you, you know, then you're competing against yourself. You're setting different goals, right? Like, well, for me, I'm four strokes better. I mean, that's I'm amazing, right? Yeah. Or but no, you're not. You know, whoever's that Fowler. I don't know who's the top guy right now. I don't even know. But like. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I so I understand. I understand that mentality. So, like, makes a lot of sense. But I think uh, I'm adjusting to it now. Yeah. So, tell me about where you're at now. Let's let's talk. You you started with. Uh, no, I'll let you tell me you know, like how your how your career has uh, transpired over time. Oh, great. Um, so, after 08, you know, the financial crisis hit. And I was interviewing, I had that job at this place called Perella Weinberg Partners. And um, they're now a public company and are, are crushing it. But at that time, it was only 20 people. So I was basically kind of shadowing the founder and uh, working in M&A banking, like building models, financial models to evaluate companies that yeah. uh, might be acquired or merged, buy or sell, all that stuff. And um, So to put a number on a company, like just to yeah. figure out how much yeah. these companies were so it could get yeah. bought. Okay. Yeah, 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 in basic terms. Okay. Um, and then 08 happened, I lose, and then their financial crisis hits. And I'm like, oh, all right, good. At least I can go get my job on Wall Street and like interview and stuff. And I was like interviewing Morgan Stanley and Goldman, all these places. And they're like, dude, like if you want to be a janitor here, maybe we can give you a job. And I was like, oh, I'm not above any work. Does that lead to another job? Like, I'll do it. So it was basically not Did exactly. Did not see you from Harvard? Does that not even matter at that point? Well, it does, but like, you know, they're laying off thousands of people, right? Like we thought the world was ending in a way. Like sure, it, it yeah. was like, you know, the Great Depression was the last time we saw anything like this. Um, and it snapped back surprisingly quick, but at the time it was tough. So I got an opportunity to work for um, a family office, which was basically like hedge fund strategy. They invested in assets and stocks and all sorts of things. Um, but uh, he was a guy I knew through the wrestling community. Uh, he did really well, um, you know in the hedge fund world. And he had a manufacturing business that manufactured steel parts for like farm farming equipment and mine sweeps for the government. So he's like, Hey, listen, if you don't get the job at Morgan Stanley, why don't you come work for me? I want to build out this strategy and we'll kind of operate kind of like a hedge fund. And uh, you can manage a stock trading portfolio, long, short equity. And then you could be an analyst for the manufacturing company and kind of learn more about that business. So I went out to Boulder, Colorado of all places in 08, which was kind of the opposite of what I thought I'd be doing because, you know, the financial center of the world is New York. That's where my people are. It's where my family is. Um, is so that where out, he was manufacturing like the, the, the metal? No, pieces? no, the company was out uh, in Canada and Hamilton. Um, I guess that's uh, Ontario. And, and are um, we talking about Mike no Novogratz right now? No, no, okay. I never actually worked for Mike. Me and Mike worked uh, were on the board of Eat the Streets together, and then you know we share some investment deals together. And I invested in his company, but I okay. never worked uh, for his company. Oh, get out of here! I didn't yeah. know that. I swore yeah. you guys you worked for him for years. Yeah, no, I would say 
close friend and uh, co-invest on certain things and like uh, just a great guy, but yeah. I, I've never hired by his company. So gotcha. anyway, did that for a number of years, came back, worked with my brother-in-law who was a Harvard wrestler as well. And we ran um, you know, a fund that invested in um, you know, bonds. So he was a bond trader, not to get too granular, but like the commercial mortgage-backed securities, which was a good strategy after 09 and 08. Um, I ran a portfolio of long short equity of stocks. And then we had you know, a global macro currency strategy and a few other things. Um, now, at this point, are you extremely passionate about this? Were you, were you in this and trying to be the best at it? Yeah. I mean, this is what I was doing full time. You know, pretty much I would stay in shape a little bit, but like, you know, my full days and long days were just, you know, getting up in the morning, doing research for hours, talking to the the bank desks that would say, hey, this is what we're seeing, you know, my, managing my, posi- my positions in portfolio, um, you know, sometimes even Asian markets, which require like, you know, middle of the night checking positions. So yeah, it was, yeah. Your almost. circadian, your circadian rhythm wasn't important to you anymore. Yeah, I wish <laughs> you, don't really have, you don't have a choice when the money's hemorrhaging, you gotta, yeah. you gotta make the call. Gotcha. So, um, but, it, but it's interesting and amazing because everything's tied to it, right? You understand the markets, you can always invest, you can find ways to make money. And um, yeah, you have investors as well that you have to be accountable for. And um, you know, it's ex- exciting and fast paced, but also a skill that's very useful. And understanding global economies and politics is a, a useful skill no matter what. Mm. Um, so there for, I guess, seven or eight years. But what happened is my brother-in-law got stage four lymphoma, um, which a young guy at that point, he was only in his late thirties and had like almost no symptoms, but you know, fast forward, he, he got through it and beat it. And it's a really good story, but we started to kind of like, you know, reevaluate things and unwind some things in the fund. And he, you know, was spending a lot more time with his family. And I, uh, was classmates with Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss were the Facebook twins. Um, and they were deep into Bitcoin at that point. And I was like, ah, maybe, you know, at that time, I was a little egotistical. Like, this is silly. This is funny money. This is for Silk Road drugs. This, what, and- what, year, what year was this? Sorry, this would be 26, 2015. I was aware. 2015, I was aware of it. 14, but I didn't really invest till 2016. Gotcha. And, so and not, how did you super- become close with the, with the Winklevoss, right? How did you... How'd you- uh, get close to that. Friends, I mean, we were acquaintances or knew each other in college. We weren't really super close because they were rowing and, and doing things. And I was kind of head down, you know, meathead wrestler. So, yeah. but in college, I mean, in New York City, we connected again. We had a bunch of common friends and I was like, they're working on interesting things. Um, and then we started to open a dialogue a bit. And I think I was one of their first, uh, maybe it was 2015, because I, I, they lost Gemini, this crypto exchange. I think in 2015 or 16. And I, I was one of their first accounts for sure, because I remember opening it up. Um, Anyway, we were changing what we were doing at the family office at Clearview. Joel, my brother-in-law, was getting over lymphoma. And I was like, all right, I, you know, I think I'm going to invest more in, in the crypto space and uh, start to manage you know, money in that space as well as the stock market. So I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I just want yeah. to get this all straight. So um, you're not taking your own personal money. You're taking the money that we have in this like hedge fund almost like right am i right with saying that when i left when i left it was personal money um because i was like hey i'm seeing opportunity and i was leaving the family office uh that that was with my brother-in-law and so i was investing i started uh, a holding company i started a holding company a couple llc's and i basically launched a fund to invest my you know my family office or my money Um, gotcha yeah so then that was kind of the strategy, you know, being Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, some of these other tokens as the ICO boom, the initial coin offering boom happened in 2017. Um, and then I got kind of deep entrenched in that community, in that world, because there was like these meetups every week and the energy in the community was just growing and it was so strong. And 
because of some of my relationships, I was like, you know, kind of getting access to, to see what was going on and the latest things in the technology. Um, still managing public markets, you know, stock market stuff, but a lot of what I've so, been doing. I'm sorry, yeah. you were taking, you were taking, you had other people's money that you were now trading inside the stock market, but now you're also taking their money and using it in Bitcoin. No, when I left, it was my own family office. So it was just mine for the time being. I eventually had a little bit of family and friends money that wanted to invest in crypto. So I helped a little bit, but um, it was my, my fund, my family. So you're doing your own thing. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. And in that world at that time, uh, it wasn't horrible because the returns were kind of crazy. If you could handle the volatility, um, because the volatility is... (laughs) you know, insane as far yeah, as like, the swings. I mean, we're seeing it's 27 now down 27% this month. Yeah. Uh, but you know, still in almost $50,000, it's still a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I was at. I was doing, my brother's an actor in LA. So we did, you know, executive produced a couple films. We do, um, you know, some stunt stuff for the background because the wrestling, yeah. um, we have three development projects in the work. So we're working on like some scripts and some literary options and life rights to make movies. Really? Um, so you guys like that. Is, it, is that more your brother's thing or is that uh, you're into that just as much? I enjoy it too. I think I'd like, to, you know, I've invested in some of the stuff I've helped on sets and, and TV and film and different, different, you know, kind of different roles, but the real thing I want is to create something and see if we can create something interesting. Well, uh, so we have three projects that we're trying to get over the goal line. Uh, that would be, you know, either written by or produced by us. And, um, you know, these things are tough, like, especially in independent film world, it's like, it's a bit of a crapshoot as far as getting projects made. Sometimes could be the best, uh, the best project in the world, but bad timing, or mm-hmm. you might have money locked up and then the money leaves type of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then the, the nonprofit stuff, which takes up a lot of time, which is the Beat the Streets, and uh, was uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that I um, was on the board of as well. Yeah. So pretty much your days, though, like your your way, your main thing for money right now is is, is still the stock market, or are you all in crypto now? Both. So I still trade um, equities, yeah, you know, long short equity, equity options, and then uh, crypto, which is crazy because it's a twenty four hour market and, and uh, yeah. there's a lot going. And you're day trading. Like Bitcoin and Ethereum, still. I mean, there's depending on opportunity, I might buy or sell it, but generally that stuff I buy and hold Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah, it's yeah. more of a longer term play. I think if uh, everyone I talk to, and I would tell you, hopefully, you own some, was have one to five percent of your net worth in it. Yeah. And um, you know, we'll see. You know, when you have a kids, you know, it goes in their trust at some point, and then they got a bunch of money to go to college. So, I think um, there's other coins that are maybe interesting now with the NFT boom and some of the protocols being built. But you want to have some exposure to the the best of breed Bitcoin, Ethereum type things. Yeah. Um, I uh, I put like to make a long story short, I made a bit. I made a big mistake. <laughs> so 2017, right? I bought. I think it was 2017. Yeah, early 2017, I bought Bitcoin and I bought Ethereum, small amount of Ethereum, more Bitcoin, and it ended up. It ended up going from I think I bought it like nine thousand dollars. So whenever Bitcoin was nine thousand dollars, yeah, and it dropped down to you know it actually went from nine thousand to like twenty something thousand. Then it dropped down to like three or four thousand. Yeah. I stayed strong, and then I didn't touch that. I haven't touched it until this year, until like five months ago. I had uh, one of my buddies hit me up and was like, "Yo, I'm taking." Like and he does really well for himself, but he's a very yeah. conservative dude. Yeah, and he was like, I have this, like this inside info on this coin called the Shiba Inu coin, oh, wow. yeah, which I know you've heard of at this point. But at the yeah. time, this was a uh, this was in March, 
So he, he tells me about it and he's like, one of my buddies just made like, you know, uh, two, his cousin made like two million. The guy who's kind of like knows the developers and has all the information on it, he made $25 million and it was only going to keep going up. It was eventually going to be on Coinbase and there's going to be all these new swapping technology that's going to come out so it could be easily swapped. And I'm like, all right. So I basically sold everything, put it into Shiba Inu and it went, the Shiba Inu went from, Let's say I had $100,000 in it. $100,000 hit like 14000 and it stayed there for a few months. Oh. And next thing I know, my boy, one of the Vayner Chucks hit me up because I'm friends with, you know, I'm, I'm in yeah. the Vayner, uh, Vayner Sports. AJ Vaynerchuk hits me up and we start talking about NFTs. And I'm like, you know what? This Shiba, I, I'm already screwed on it. I'm, I'm going to just buy some NFTs now. So then I basically sold, sold my Shiba, bought the NFTs, and then all of a sudden Shiba started skyrocketing. And I'm like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. <laughs> yeah, I just, it, I just got so unlucky. Um, but I, my whole point of bringing it up is that I should have just stayed with my Bitcoin, stayed with my Ethereum, because at the end of the day, I would have been better off. And I sold it around 55,000. So I still would be down a little bit, right? I sold Bitcoin at like 55,000. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I sold it at, I sold it at a good price, but yeah, still yeah. crap the bed. I got some good NFTs. But the NFTs is a buy and hold thing. I'm not, you know, I'm not just selling them, you know, for, you know, a couple thousand dollars. So, yeah, I mean, you got an education, maybe a little expensive, but are you, it sounds like you're flat at least, or you're, you got some money in the NFTs now. It's, it's one of those things where definitely you learned a lot and you got exposure. The best, and hindsight's a tough game to play, whether you're a trader or you're an investor or you're into Bitcoin, like you can never play hindsight because you'll kill yourself, you torture yourself. And every yeah. trader knows, like a wrestler, right? Short memory, zero, zero, second period. You get thrown to your back, you get off, second period, zero, zero. Otherwise, the mountain's just too high. You don't think you could come back. Yeah. And like investing, you have to have that same mentality, which is a good parallel for our sport too. Like you got to just zero, zero, start again. And if you think about the people that lost hard drives with hundreds of millions of dollars on it, the people that sold when they shouldn't have sold, like you're in great company. Everyone does that. And mm -hmm. the only people that really, really did actually, you know, extraordinarily well, were either so, so rich to begin with, or so, I don't know if the word's ignorant or just lost their hard drives and found them and lucky, right? Because like <laughs> no one would, no one would, not take profit at a thousand percent return on these things, right? Yeah. So, like most people took profit, bought a little more in the way, took profit, and then then they got a lot of money, and then they just spread their bets like a portfolio and just put it in a bunch of things. Some of them have done really well too, but it is it's a frustrating game because yeah. the volatility is crazy, and then like it's moving so fast. One week or one month in crypto lands like ten years. The opportunities coming left and right. The metaverse, the NFTs, you know, and Dogecoin's crazy today, up fifteen percent because Elon said that he might take some test, some types of Tesla payments through Dogecoin. And that's like just silly. You never know when Elon, who like wants to play God, decides something silly. Like that's generally to me a little bit silly. It's yeah. a meme coin that has great community, but not a real huge purpose. It's like a Reddit army and Elon kind of like just having fun. And then all of a sudden you have these crazy swings. So that's the danger of this market that you yeah. can have that unexpected volatility over the silliness. But the beauty is it's very democratic. It's got a lot of people have a lot more access than they did to investing. And uh, it could solve some really big problems and could shake up some things globally within corrupt um, governments and central banks and things like that. So, yeah, I'm a believer. Obviously, you know, I would still have exposure to Ethereum and Bitcoin, even at these prices, kind of forget about it. Um, I think having NFT exposure. It's tough if they're pieces of art, unless you have art experts, like you can have some punks and different things, but like that might be bubbly, like a pixelated picture of a guy, 
might go up higher for a while, but we may find out that the utility of that at a collectible value of that is overdone. Mm. The space is not overdone. These NFTs will have value beyond digital pixelated art, no. beyond all sorts of silliness. It'll have, you know, maybe it's biometrics, maybe it's your medical records are going to be an NFT or different things. Um, and the metaverse is real. People are spending a lot of money and time in these like virtual reality places, these lands, sandbox, yeah. decentral land. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much your kids do in gaming right now, but I'm sure whether it's Roblox or different things, they're like, they're in this world or they're interested in it. Yeah. Like even, like even Fortnite, the amount of money, like I, I think the game is free, but it's all through yeah. avatars and, and different, you know, clothes right. that they could buy. And it's kind of similar to, it's like a status thing. It's going to be, I think it's kind of similar to what NFTs are going to mean in the metaverse. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, I just walked in this guy's, you know, fake house in the metaverse and he has, you know, the, one of those punks on his wall. He's yeah. the man. I want to hang out at his house more. And it makes these people feel good that have it. And they can, it yeah. has a value on it. Besides, it doesn't get stuck in that one, you know, in, in the game. Like, you know, my son buys that, you know, that skin. That is now stuck in the game. You can't take that out. But in the metaverse, right. you're able to sell that item and then get Bitcoin or whatever, you know, crypto you're able to get yeah. and, and pull it out. Yeah, it's really well said. I completely agree. And that is the utility of it, is owning real estate in that world. People are spending hundreds of millions of dollars, some people. And like, you're seeing yachts and homes and land and nike has a whole place now just and that's incredible when did that did, was there like an ipo on that thing or uh, like well something? they wouldn't oh like a i see well they don't what? they didn't sell tokens for it they just own they just have like a the art virtual works, right? space yeah they have like a virtual little space of real estate in the world there's like a nike metaverse thing now, but, right? but also the nfts right the little it's like little gifts of the uh is that oh not, yeah yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I saw the floor prices already like 10 to 10, they would have, oh, they would have minted it. Yeah, I don't. I forget Ethereum. when that mint would have happened. Excuse me, but um, yeah, it's wild. Like the space isn't going anywhere. The asset prices, I think, are bubbly. I'm a little nervous. Like yeah. I, maybe invest in the picks and shovels. I'd buy tokens like Sandbox, Mana, uh, maybe Engine token. Um, and because you can get exposure to that world through those things without taking a six million dollar risk on a punk or something like crazy. Yeah. There yeah. might be new ones that are trading at fifty bucks. I bought some baseball cards from Candy Digital, which is run by um, Mike Nova's, um, well, a team of people, but Matty Nova, the youngest Novo, is like senior there. So I bought a bunch of the baseball cards. You know, a lot of UFC folks uh, are, are doing things now. Fighters are doing stuff. Yeah. I think um, Dapper Labs partnered with UFC to do uh, NFTs. Um, so, yeah, some of the sports collectible stuff is interesting as well. But everything collect collectible is like, huge it's, it seems like a big bubble right now i don't know how much higher we could go i think we can go higher for a little while but i don't know if a punk's going to be worth six million in five years yeah it's going to be saturated with more you know other things that people want to spend their money on i'm sure i think uh, so people more people are going to be buying real estate at that point you know people are going to have pets then you need franchises for dogs for pet stores like does yeah. it, it it's i don't think it's going to really going to end um uh, what was I going to ask you? Um, I was thinking about this. Tell me, I, you, I think you're a good guy to ask about this. So iconic UFC photos, but in uh -huh. an NFT form. You know, yeah. our image and likeness is owned by the UFC. So UFC fighters can't take a Getty image and then profit off of it. Right. But what if you have an artist, you know, me versus Anderson Silva, me knocking him out. That's a moment that's never going away, right? So moments like and, uh, Conor McGregor being choked out by Nate Diaz. An illustration of that from an artist, his own creation based off of that photo, but different because it's an artist making it. 
Would that have, would you be able to, and then I would go to Nate Diaz and get him on board. He gets a percentage of the NFT. We put it on, yeah. on the market. Would you be able, do you think legally you're allowed to, to do that? Yeah, I do. Like copyright imaging issues. I think you, I think you can, obviously I'm not a lawyer and I, but I have had a lot of people ask and they're recreating moments like uh, Gable Stevenson could recreate maybe his backflip or something like, but he can't for the Olympics because NBC owns that. Right. And like ESPN owns that for college. Right. So he can't, but maybe he can just do it and have a, you know, production company set it up and do it in a cool way and recreate it and then try to sell it due to his, now he owns that likeness. He owns that. Um, so you can do those things. Yeah. It's just one of those things where are you buying the, that collectible or the moment and the moment there's, is there a lot more value in a moment? Probably, but maybe not. Maybe there's value in both. Maybe I want the, you know, your painting or digital 3d imaging of you versus Anda silver. That's like created by a computer and you own it and he owns it. And maybe that is worth something versus, you know, the live one that did happen the actual footage like NBA top shop was doing. Yeah certainly well, seems like inherently like the real value. Like, Oh, I own that moment. I own the, you know, a home run in the world series or something. Yeah. Like those are the moments that like, but it doesn't mean what you're saying isn't worth it. That might be worth to the right person and millions of dollars. Yeah. You, yeah. You're making a good point because at the, at the end of the day, UFC at some point, Getty images, whoever really owns the rights to that images, or they're probably partner on it could come out of the NFT collection of every single one of those moments. So they're there goes it. my moment. They're doing it. They're I don't doing know if I don't know if there goes your moment, but they're definitely doing it and they're going to cash in on all that. Yeah. And we don't get a percentage of that. <laughs> I know. Well, that's, that's a problem. That's, without, that's me. Oh my yeah. God. My, my, that's selling for $7 billion and I just get to look at it. I'm, I don't, I'm just kidding with that number, but no, but it's brutal. Uh, I mean, like that's why not having it. I mean, I'm not going to get into a union argument because I yeah, think yeah. it is, it's a pretty good deal, but that's part of the problem. All right. Cut this out, Troy. Cut it out. Yeah. yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Chris yeah. will never fight in the UFC yeah, again. I, I no, no, I don't really have a, I don't have a dog in that fight or an opinion. I'm just saying that's yeah. like, you know, that's what you weigh. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you weigh. So. Exactly. Um, Wow. Um, so what, what do you, th- and, and I, I'm going back to the original, uh, thing that you were saying where when you do get hit hard, not being afraid to reset, don't feel like you lost out. Like, and, and I was thinking in terms of Bitcoin and Ethereum, yeah. start throwing money back in there. Like, you know, a little at a time doesn't mean you have to get it all back right away, but that's something that I feel like over time is going to be successful. And I started doing that They're, even on Coinbase, they make it so easy where you could, you know, you put, you, you know, let's say you put 500 bucks in, you could do it every week on that same day, it's going to keep taking money out of your bank account. Do you think that's a smart way of doing it? Just slowly putting money back in? Or do you think watching the price is really important as well? Like, you know, if it hits 55 today, then I probably shouldn't buy it. I should wait till it goes back down to 50. Yeah. I mean, you could do those things where you have buy orders and and sell orders in there. Like you don't want to sell. That's fine. You're a long only guy. Then you'd have buy orders where every $5,000 it sells off, you think you want to buy. It's just risky because sometimes there's these like, catastrophic events. And then you might be buying in the face of a major sell-off because let's say the regulators shut this thing down. I put that at a very, very, very low percent chance. But if I were, if you have the time to keep a little eye on it and I send you a text, Hey, it might be a good time to nibble here. Probably better to do it that way. But you can keep, if you're such a long-term holder, yeah, you can just keep buying. Um, But there is a little bit, it's always better to get it cheaper um, if you can. Can you explain to me why, uh, like, Bitcoin's been out? One, of, I think, it's, is it the old? It's not the oldest crypto, is it? Is it? It's the, yeah, yeah, it's, it's original. The original. So it's the yeah. original crypto, and obviously, technology constantly is growing, and you know they're coming out with some great technologies uh, in in crypto. And why why do I 
explain to me why Bitcoin is going to stick around and, and, and stand the test of time when better technologies, more efficient technologies are going to be coming <coughs> out uh, and it probably already have. Yeah, it's a good question. And I toil with it a bit. Um, I will say this. Bitcoin has a really well-defined lane, and a lot of these others don't right now. Their well-defined lane is digital gold store value only. It used to be potentially a payment system and other things. Um, I think it's the original. It's got the most institutional adoption. It's got the biggest community, and it has a technology that is useful um, you know, for storing value, we'll say. And I think that's it. Store uh, you know, Digital gold, you think of it that way, and that's why it's going to be around for a while. To your point, if quantum computing gets adopted or more technology comes out, it could disrupt things. But right now, all the other stuff solves all sorts of other problems, and it's not as simple. Ethereum storyline is a million things. You know, they're a big part of this NFT boom. They're also a big part of smart contracts and how we do digital signatures and all sorts of things and like digital transfer of ownership of different things. Bitcoin, its simplicity in a way is its strength and its first mover advantage is a big one. You know, it was way ahead of everything else. Yeah. So the community is certainly still strongest. Um, But what's the percentage of people that actually own Bitcoin? And and like, as far as the amount of Bitcoin that there is, isn't it like a very small group of people that own the majority of Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, if there's, you know, going to be 21 million ever mined, it obviously gets passed around a lot. Now it's a trading, uh, you know, it's almost like a commodity as far as assets being traded. Um, I still, yeah, it's not as democratic globally. There are a lot of different people that have pieces of it now and it's, it's growing, but you're right. It's just a lot of people that are, you know, running funds now that have a lot of it or a lot of holders that are just very wealthy. So. And, and, and like you see with these, the old coins, it's easy to see with like the rug pulls and, but it yeah. could, it, it could happen on a big scale like Bitcoin as well. Right. And I'm sure it's happening all the time. Yeah. And do you think, do you think there's like a, a group of people that are like, Hey, all right, let's sell off because it's going to get a reaction like this. And then we buy back in lower. I mean, how do you, um, oh, you mean like an active targeted manipulation? Yeah, of, yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. is that even illegal? I mean, it seems easy. Like you could see on Twitter, Elon Musk says something, boom, manip- manipulates yeah. the market. Now this could you could do this like with a group of celebrities. Oh, let's let's talk about the Shiba Inu coin. Okay, up it hits this number. Let's get out. Yeah, I mean, in the public market, sometimes there's a market manipulation issue, they could say, but this is not, right? A lot of these people aren't speaking on behalf of investors. It's not like insider trading. And yes, this community uh, are the Reddit army. They are the Twitter army. They are these decentralized you know, gaming type people or just rich people with funds. Yeah. So they do use that technique to manipulate. Elon, whether he's guilty of anything or not, he's definitely manipulating the market. There's no question. Yeah. And uh, if it's exactly to his benefit or not, or just for a laugh, I don't know. But yeah, that's part of the, still a little bit of the risk to, to the price swings. You're seeing Bitcoin handle it a little bit better because there's so many institutions in it now. The Harvard Endowment owns Bitcoin, you know, like, so it's getting... A bit of a seal of approval from regulators. Uh, you're seeing ETFs launch and like pension funds are involved. So that one should be more stable and harder, um, you know, to be catastrophically manipulated. Um, but yeah, a lot of these other coins, it's it's a bit of the wild west. I have a I have a few people in my life that are they're getting into mining. You know, they're getting video cards in their house and they're starting okay. to like mine. It's like you know, I don't know whatever, like fifty dollars extra a month. And but the more video cards they get, the more they get a month. And okay. If let's say you have a warehouse and you 
and you have tons of these mining machines in here, and it would make sense that you would constantly be making money. And But it, it's weird to me that not everybody would be doing that. It sounds almost too good to be true. Is there any, other than electric, paying electric, um, is there anything that you see as a, a reason why not everybody's just jumping into mining? If we think crypto is going to be the future. Yeah. Why is that not something everybody with money is starting to do? Um, it's hard nowadays with the um, to operate small rigs and make money off of it. The energy costs are high, especially if they're doing it at their home. Uh, solving the equations are much harder. The funnel gets tighter. We're getting close to mining it all. It's going to take a long time now, but it gets much tighter. And the uh, there's a halving where they cut the reward for the miners in half every four years. In 2024, it, it gets cut again. So generally, the people that make money is these huge institutional rigs and data centers with really, really low energy cost. And they also borrow... Um, and they give back energy to the power grid of like cities and metropolises and areas. I am not an expert on all the mining. Um, I have some people I can talk to, but I think it's probably a losing proposition to be operating any mining operation um, from a home um, by yourself. Uh, I think that's tough. Um, I don't think you get much out. You're going to get many coins. And I don't know. I mean, it also kind of depends on the price of Bitcoin where it's at. Probably takes a really long time to get any reward with one single operation. What they do now is there's mining pools where you could pay to be part of a pool. Yeah, and a lot, of people, a lot of people that operate smaller mining operations will partner where you share. There's a revenue share of it, but at least you can use each other's resources so you have more, um, more rigs operating. Gotcha. It's also hard to source. Well, I guess it's not as hard as it used to be. Now, I still think you can get the hardware now. Like yeah, no, I, I think video cards are still hard to get. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, some of the, the, the rigs, the ant miners and like okay. these things from Bitmain. There's big, Bitmain's the biggest company probably in this space. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, they might, they're probably smarter than I am, especially they're probably engineers and like brilliant minds. If they think they can do it, they're not going to deter them. But I would say, yeah, and you're, unless you're a, a big book player in that space, it's probably not an easy way to do well. Gotcha. All right. And yeah, one, of the, one of the other things, look, because I heard, you know, I was you know, going back and forth with a few people on this. And one of the things I also learned is that a lot of the big places and institutions that are doing this are overseas because electric is cheaper there. Did you, so, did you hear? Yeah. Uh, so what happened was, and now part of the recent sell-off in the space was because China banned mining. That was the biggest place in the world. My, China did all the mining. China and, banned mining? Yeah, crypto I mining. I guess yeah. I missed that. So what that, but that, what that did was it sent a lot of mining operations to, to the U.S. So it, there's uh, upstate by Niagara Falls where they use hydropower. There's, uh, yeah, they're all trying to do it more eco-friendly ways and also save money, right? Because it's like they could subsidize energy costs. Gotcha. So Texas has two really big, I think Riot uh, is one company down there in Texas. That's a big one. Um, and there's a few others around. So there's more in, in the U.S. than there used to be for sure. Um, but there's like Kazakhstan, there's people talking about the Middle East and different places. So it's all over, but the China ban shifted up kind of the location of where people are mining. Jeez. And yeah. they just did that to stay more green because it was using too much energy? No, I don't think China gives a shit about yeah, that. Yeah. So what they, are they doing? Well, um, I just think that they like to have control of everything and the control of the people, right? Like they don't let internet, like Facebook's not there. And it just depends. They, they were, depending on the policy and how it benefits them, they'll either allow it or won't. Some, you know, I don't, I forget the latest reason why they banned uh, all the mining operations there. It might've been just government oversight and control. Gotcha. Um, yeah. They don't like people getting rich unless they want them to get rich. And then, not, they, and, then, not, and, they, and then they go missing if, if they don't like them. Right. Jack Ma. I don't even know where Jack Ma is these yeah. days. He went missing. Where he's back, I think. Oh, he's back. I think is he's that, back. Yeah, they, they have like a robot of him. 
Looks like him. He's not yeah. really there. Amazing. Uh, hey, man, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, oh, thanks for having me. It was great. Let's stay in touch, man. I would love uh, for you to help me out with some Bitcoin and Ethereum uh I'd love to. Like just help me help educate me. And if you any of those good days that you're that you're talking about, let me know. Because I don't I can't I'm not are you in front of your computer all day long with this stuff? Yeah, phone or computer or, or you can do a lot everywhere, your phone, you know, and, and then once you're in, you like you can't stop looking at it. <laughs> Unfortunately. What, what, what apps are you what apps are you uh in that you're like you're you're seeing where everything's at constantly? Um I basically just use my accounts honestly i mean i have apps like coin Mar- uh coin market cap and what coin cap and a few of these other things there's, there's a block folio I-, I can send ones that maybe are easy for you to kind of consolidate everything mm-hmm. but like i have my gemini and coinbase and then i have a few other exchanges uh there's a bunch out there so i'm like all over the place but uh so i kind of just log into my accounts and monitor because i'm trading gotcha. um but there are aggregators or portfolios that make it a, maybe a little easier to monitor yeah and I, I know I said it was going to be last question, uh, but yeah. uh, like gas fees and stuff, how do you manage that? I mean, you got to pay for it. I don't. I mean, as far as like how like, do you no, calculate? Like, yeah, are you are you are you constantly like doing calculations, making sure like if it's worth selling or not? If you're like day trading stuff, oh, adding in the yeah. gas prices. I'm not a high volume trader of Ethereum in any way. The only time I'm doing that is if I'm like using uh, Sushi Swap or uh, one of those the to buy diff- stuff. Yeah, to buy like other tokens and gotcha. like or like some NFT stuff, and that uh, you know. It's a consideration, but if I want it, like you're you're willing to pay. If you need it, you want it at the time. You're willing to pay the premium because you think the opportunity is good. Yeah, but uh, I'm not trading those at super high volume. So, gotcha. All right, man. I appreciate it, brother. Can I put a a, a shameless plug to beat the streets? We're That's doing a hundred percent. Any anything that you want to plug where people can find you? Um, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, so Beat the Streets, uh, you know it well, but it's a national organization with uh, 8,500, 8, uh, you know, young uh, men and women. And we're doing a gear up campaign to get 3,000 kids, um, you know, wrestling gear and shirts. Uh, we're looking to get to 150,000. We're at 80,000 right now. You could go to uh, beatthestreetsnational.org and um, we have a little campaign. So if anyone's interested, you know, this organization is kind of what opened, uh, you know, my opportunity, which is, you know, life skills, wrestling, you know, development skills that lead to a college education that give you, you know, freedom to, you know, have a great life. So yeah. just sit, sit and trade crypto all day. That's a pretty I good know. life. <laughs> hopefully some, some, some of our kids are doing it. Hopefully. Yeah. I love it. Um, anything else, bro? Any, any, uh, where, where can people find you on Instagram, Twitter? Yeah. My uh, Instagram is J- J- Jesse Jansen. And then, uh, Twitter is, uh, Jesse Jansen one. I think I, I lost my original name. I think someone stole it. Uh-oh. Uh, but that's about it. Thank you so much. I'm happy you're healing well, and I look forward to seeing you kicking ass again. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show with Jesse Jansen. Uh, he's an awesome guy. He is you know, one of the very few people that I looked up to as a kid, and, uh, and after talking to him, I feel inspired. I feel like I really want to uh, be more diligent with each one of my days and um, do a better job with time management. You could see he's a very... Uh, a uh, serious guy when it comes to what he wants to get done and the goals that he has in front of him he's gonna uh, kind of do everything the right way so it was nice talking to him uh loved his stories and uh i hope you guys enjoyed it as well remember if you guys want to hear more conversations like this one i just had with jesse jansen all you have to do is click that follow button on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever you do your listening Every podcast is also available on my youtube channel so if you haven't subscribed yet please let's go subscribe 
I'll be back next week with another great guest. But until then, I'm Chris Weidman, and this is Won't Back Down. Thanks for listening.